Well, Rodney. Here we are again. Here we are again. Isn't this exciting? Yes, very. Yeah, we're going to do a little fiddling here. I hope that doesn't drive people crazy, but we're still working our way through the technology here. Hello, everybody. I am Chick Morgan, and I am your co-host, along with Rodney Bercio, the photographer-in-chief. And we want to welcome you to Passports and Poets, conversations about the power of place, the places that change us, and why it matters. And I don't know, every week that, that phrase, that mission gets more relevant to what we're talking about mm-hmm. and helping the planet and, and wonderful things and difficult things that are going on. And today, um, we don't know where we're going to start. We don't know where this is going to go, but we are just so um, grateful, I will say, first of all, to have with us Dylan Roberts, who is a professional war correspondent, and we're going to hear a lot about that. Um, And you have such an interesting background. When we first met you, we were talking about a lot of your experiences. And then a month ago, Rodney, Dylan walks in and goes, I think I'm going to Ukraine, Yeah, (laughs) uh, which we want to hear a lot about. So Dylan, let's just get started. How does somebody get to be a war correspondent? Is that a conscious choice? Do you fall into it? How did it happen for you? Yeah, I, that's probably one of the number one questions that I get. I bet. Um, <laughs> and why do it? But I think you first have to have the mentality of you have to do this kind of job, not even you want to do this. You can want to do a lot of things, but I, I really think you have to have a mentality of, like, I have to go to these type of places that require, you know, not just trying to get good work, but your life. So it's something you have to do, not something you want to do. Um, that's kind of how I've, I've always approached it. And, you know, I just started kind of in college, saved up money, bought a plane ticket, went to Iraq and started kind of just from there and um, been able to travel to nearly 40 to 50 countries covered everything from different conflicts in Iraq, um, Syria, um, places like Somalia, West Bank, Israel, Gaza, and most recently uh, in natural disasters like uh, Nepal earthquake or uh, hurricanes in Haiti. And and most recently uh, went to uh, Poland and Ukraine and was there for for about a month and yeah same same type of deal is you do your research you do um who's available in country you can work with what stories are important to tell and you figure that out a lot once you're there obviously but you try to do the best you can uh pre-planning and uh, assess the um the country and talking to people and reading about it, um, of journalists who are currently there and, and when they're not busy, ask them, Hey, what's the situation like? How is it reporting? So, so what, I was, love it. what was your first experience like? You said it was, well, yeah, Iraq. that's, yeah, you, you say this is something that you, you know, you have to do. This is, mm-hmm. you know, we need to, it, uh, you know, the public, I guess, needs to know what's going on, needs to know the truth. What, but what, yeah, what was your, first inspiration for you to say this, I'm the the person that has to go do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I first 
thought I was going to be into movies. Like I grew up in Austin and grew up with like the Austin Film Society and going to Robert Rodriguez's film studio and we probably crossed paths somewhere yeah. at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can save a dog and yeah. Robert. I had, oh wait, that was you right. <laughs> yeah. I had friends that were in Spy Kids One, you know, mm-hmm. while I was like in fifth or sixth grade and mm-hmm. we always made home movie I always made home movies. Um, and then like the matrix came out during when I was a kid and like Mm. that, like almost every person who's in the film industry at my age, the matrix was like the reason why you went into movies. And then when I got into college, um, they didn't have a film program, but they had a, they had a journalism program. And you know what? one second, I'm going to shut the door because the cows are yelling <laughs> and the birds are singing too loudly. I'll be right back. Carry on. I was wondering what we were hearing. I was like, those are cows. <laughs> Welcome to Texas. Yeah. In a neighborhood, too. Yeah. Hearing cows. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I toured this neighborhood before and we were like, whoa, there's cows in this neighborhood. <laughs> All right, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, moo. <laughs> yeah. And your question one last time, um, Rodney, so I remember it was about, well, it's just, you had made the comment that, you know, this is something oh, wow. that you have to do. You know, mm-hmm. what, you know, what, why did you, why did you have the calling for you to? <laughs> yeah. So I thought I was going to be in the movie and I grew up, I grew up lucky enough to be in, in Texas that has, at least in my, in my experience has a good um, um, have a good movie scene and people to, to talk to and really friendly, maybe not like the business side of things like in LA and New York, but at least as far as the education wise and talking to people who are in the industry. Absolutely. But, and then I got introduced to journalism when I was in college because they didn't. And, um, and I watched, uh, the documentary Restrepo, which is about, um, the U S military, uh, in Afghanistan in this one area that's a very that was a very dangerous mountainous area and uh, I was filmed by two uh, war journalists Sebastian Junger and and Tim Harrington and um, I remember watching that documentary being like yes I want mm-hmm. I want to do that like I in the beginning I wanted to do it mm-hmm. and um, I did my research and talked to a lot of former war correspondents and um including the uh, one that was uh, killed in Ukraine, uh, mm. Brent Renard. Mm. And so um, I still remember the email that I sent to him and um, talked to him on the phone and talk, it's like, hey, I want to get into this kind of mm. stuff. So yeah. I talked to a lot of war journalists when I was first starting out and really good conversations. And they gave me like a really good insight of like, I remember one guy told me, he was like, you need to, when you go out, you have to have, uh, to think about like, imagine yourself without like a limb, just really imagine that. And it's like, cause that's the kind of stuff you could, that could possibly happen. So, but I still wanted to do it, you know, and, and I felt like I, I had to do it and, um, and it's, it's worked out, you know, for the most part. And I still enjoy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now after seasons of doing like covering different wars and natural disasters. Um, my, I have a pretty good, I feel like I have a pretty good situation of like, 
where the real danger is understanding the routes, kind of like the producing side, um, mm-hmm. where on, when I was younger, it, I did not care. Mm-hmm. Just jump in the car. Let's, let's freaking go. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I, I definitely did that in Ukraine where I was, because this wasn't like a traditional type of war that we were used you know, like Iraq and Afghanistan. This was, you know, you're dealing with a top three military and you can't treat it like a normal, you know, conflict. Um, so I, I don't know. I just, I, I fell in love with going to those type of places and meeting incredible people. And you see some of the darkest of humans, and, but you also <clears throat> see some of the most, you know, courageous and wonderful stories. That you yeah. Can I, the, the, just, you know, the, the photos that we see on our end, I can't imagine actually living because there was, um, I didn't open it. I was just, there was something on your page and it was just, it was a kid in the street crying. I don't know if that was some of your footage or what that was, mm-hmm. but I was just scanning and I saw, and it just, those are the things I can't imagine these families that are having to evacuate and they're, you know, these, mm-hmm. you know, they're, these women are carrying their cats and their mm-hmm. kids are, you know, mm-hmm. behind them just in tears and to, to see that on TV is hard enough, but to live that, I, it's just gotta be extremely difficult. Yeah. It's yeah. Go ahead. Do you connect with, um, networks and I'm I'm talking about media networks Mm -hmm. or, I mean, how do you find who to partner with and to get a particular angle in what you're doing? Yeah. If you're first starting out, like when I first started out, you just email everyone that you can and phone call. You just bother the editors as much as you can and just tell them that, Hey, I'm here. The nuisance strategy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe they just be like, Hey, what do you have? Or, you know, it's like, Hey, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know if we need something. Because you've always been an independent. Yeah. Yeah. And I've worked with, you know, from New York times, Al Jazeera to vice and, you know, not like the very big ones like CNN or Fox, mm-hmm. um, just because they roll out their own crews. And, you know, especially when, during breaking news, like they usually have, you know, three or four teams there, especially Ukraine. I think like every journalist who I've come across or worked with or looked up to or like we're there. Mm-hmm. Like, it was everyone. So um, on. But as far as like capturing footage of stories and women and children and uh i I always tell people you you just got to focus on your job you you kind of have to treat it like um kind of as like not like a military mindset but almost just like get the photo take you know get what you need to go and then process that stuff later um and what do you do with it at the time do you I mean, what, where do you send it? What do you do with it? Mm-hmm. You must have a gazillion photographs and hours of film. Yeah, it, it just depends. You know, like I, I had a few um, news agencies, um, you know, ask me, hey, could you just do some correspondent stuff? Just talk about, you know, whether it's like the train station where people are loading up to to go to Poland or humanitarian relief efforts. And... Um, and so a lot of people are either doing like just taking photos and sending it. But for the most part, especially there, for most people, it was 
they sign a contract for a month or a week or so, and they try to get as many photos or videos as they can. Um, you saw people doing documentaries. For me, I was I I tried to stay it out of working with news companies. Like I've done that, but there was a few that I I helped out because you know I th- I thought the editors were were um, were knew what they were doing and. Um, and then the other half for me was, uh, just making my own content. So I'm finishing up like a, like a short video. And then I also helped some of my friends who were doing humanitarian stuff. So, um, collecting supplies in Poland and then sending them into Ukraine and raise some money to help buy medical or boots or whatever that, what that uh, needs to be. So, um, but for the most part for me, like I... I was trying to stay completely independent, um, but I did do some some stuff for some news networks. So walk us through, because you were in the studio with us just a couple of days before <laughs> before you weren't, um, and we knew that it was a possibility. You got the call. Um, you flew. Well, where did you fly to? What happened? Mm-hmm. Walk us through this month and what that was like, both logistics and... Um, mm-hmm. the impact yeah it's um so right now currently you have to because all the there's no way of flying into ukraine there's you know, probably pretty good chance you know never happening for a long for a while you know that's all the airports are destroyed or you'll be shot mm-hmm. down or there's not just no planes going in in general so other than like military crap uh, military you know, uh, airplanes. Um, and even then, like you didn't ever really see them. You just heard them in the sky. So, um, you had to fly into Poland or Hungary or Romania, any of the border areas. I chose Poland, um, because, uh, I had some friends that were working with some, um, Polish guys that had friends in Ukraine and they were working with each other. Um, they were friends, a Polish guy, an Ukrainian guy, and he would collect supplies. And they had a network of buses, like tourist buses, that would also get people. And so when they would get people out of Ukraine and he was going back, they would load up supplies. Like, uh, you know, those tourist buses that they lift up, like the bottom mm. of the cargoes, mm-hmm. and then they would put supplies in. And then they would go back in Ukraine to get more people, but drop off the stuff and then get distributed where it needs to be. Um, so, yeah, flew into Poland, met up with those guys, but um, and then started uh, helping my buddy. He started raising money for some funds, and I took some photos and video to help him, you know, keep going. And we met, we knew each other from Iraq, so he and he's done this kind of stuff before. And, um, and then from there, where I was staying was in Lublin, which is about, about an hour. If there wasn't any, like if the checkpoint wasn't so take forever to get across into Ukraine, it would probably take you, you know, less than two hours to get into Lviv, shorter than that to get into Ukraine. So it's a pretty close to the border of Ukraine and Tons of NGOs, tons of humanitarian people uh, on the Warsaw, uh, flying into Warsaw. So you did see a lot of people coming from all over the world. Was it complicated getting in there? Mm -mm. It just no. Um, 
No, the Poland as far that was you you would already when I flew into Warsaw, you saw some Ukrainian families hanging out in the airport wondering where to go. And then my buddy sent me a picture of like the after like a week I've already been there and there was like so many Ukrainian people in Warsaw. But they were just coming, you know, when I got there I think it was almost a million. And then, like, the next week, it, like, shot up to, like, almost 3 million. Like, yeah. It was crazy amount of people. And you would – so I, I stayed in Poland for a little bit, helping my, my friend and learning, talking to the Polish people because there's a lot of Polish people that, you know, hang out in Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of people who are considered friends, and, you know, there's a lot of, like, cultural similarities. Mm-hmm. And that never been a problem. They could just come and go. Mm-hmm. At yeah, yeah. It was just oh, – so – um, I decided, uh, I, I decided to go in Ukraine, make m- multiple trips within it. And I went by the bus, the humanitarian bus. And, um, and I was able to really just see the, once you get to the checkpoint, you would just see like the lines of people of Ukrainians trying to, trying to get into Poland. I mean, miles and miles really? and miles long. Mm. Like cars that ran out of gas, just the mm. cars just kept going and going. Well, and these these checkpoints, what are those like? You know, what are, I mean, mm-hmm. are they actually checking for credentials or passports, or are they just mm-hmm. you know flowing into the country? It, so going in, uh, going in is it takes uh, no problem on the Polish side. They just check your passport, um, and then getting into Ukraine, they do take their time of like checking who you are and what you're doing, but they're just doing their due diligence. So going in is actually pretty quick. Um, and, um, getting out is way longer. One, you got millions Mm. of refugees coming in. So there's different types of lines. That's why I went by bus because a humanitarian bus, um, because it seemed a little bit quicker, but you, you could spin at the checkpoint. You know, there was people in the, especially in the early beginning, there's people staying in line for days, you know, but the average, you know, like four to six hours, you could just be staying at this Did checkpoint. Did you ever have an opportunity to talk with any of them? I mean, probably language at the issues. At, well, just Ukrainians in general that, oh, were, yeah. that were leaving or trying to leave. Oh yeah. All the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there currently, if you're between the ages, I believe, 18 to 60, if you're a male in Ukraine, you cannot leave the country. You have to stay. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. So it's mostly women and children and elderly. I, there's some cases, like uh, I met a Ukrainian guy who has three daughters, and I think he, he's like, he explained to me, like, he's the primary, like, caregiver, so he was able to leave. Um, so there's instances like that, but yeah, if you're a male between 18 and 60, you can't leave, you have to fight. And, um, um, but yeah, you would meet all sorts of people. I mean, Poland definitely has the most refugees. Um, and there, in that first wave, it seemed like it was a lot of people that had either friends or connections in Europe, uh, that they can stay with or um, they had the means to get out Mm. and that this last wave that's coming you know these are people that don't really have anything they don't have yeah when you've got 
miles of lines and taking days for these people to cross you know what are they doing for food and restrooms and or is that just got to be yeah it's pretty chaotic i mean the the polish and the humanitarian side actually did a really good job of mobilizing so food warm water throughout the lines uh was pretty great especially once you cross like there was instantly food, water, fire. Like they build makeshift fires to keep people warm, like shelter. So, it they, but you know it was still chaotic. Like bathrooms was still issue. You know people just going in the woods and um, and the trains were. You know a lot of the. So some of the ways for refugees to get out, or for journalists to get into different areas of Ukraine, um, was by train. So, which is crazy. It's like World War II. Um, and you you would see a photo of, like, people leaving uh, either the capital, Kiev, or Kherson, which is farther out west. And you would see crowds of people trying to get into the trains. And I saw a photo of a World War II one, very similar, people trying to get out mm-hmm. in the merit, and it looks, like, exactly the same. Just, you know. Different clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so... I, I, Ukraine is such a big country. It's huge. And um, it became a really, it became like a very um, difficult to get around the country because going by vehicle was very dangerous. Um, Whether it was like different checkpoints um, and you you never there was like official checkpoints within country but they had a lot of like neighborhood type checkpoints a lot of people with guns and it became very dangerous to drive once you get into a main city um it's fine but if you start driving to get to different stories or wherever and if you're not like a humanitarian convoy or you know if it's just you in a car and that's why it was really dangerous for journalists because they would try to drive to different stories um, and you could run into all sorts of different checkpoints and crossfire, accidental fire or Russian fire. But it seems like it would be worse in the cities where they're actually attacking. Yeah. I mean, it's a different type of danger. Um, But so it made it really difficult to travel in Ukraine. You would, your best bet was, was going by train. um, And, uh, but they would take, you know, a long time and, you know, going into places, it was fine. And if you had to get a train out, you know, it was very crowded. So it was a very difficult situation. And if you go by train and you're in the city, you don't have a car. And for whatever reason, the train could stop, then how are you going to get out? So it it was a very logistical, like I've never had this type of logistical transportation but I knew people who got in cars and drove around, you know, and um, and had no problems. But that was a big issue for journalists, for sure, was driving in cars um, outside of the main cities. Um, and that became so you basically had to like, especially in Kiev, you had to like get into the capital either by train or car, stay in the city and walk to the stories that you're trying to do. So, uh, because if you got, if you're in the main city and you got in a car and you wanted to go check out this other front line and drive to it or drive to another story, I mean, there was instances, a lot of journalists got hurt 
doing that. So um, it's a very difficult country to move around in quickly. So um, that was one of the things that really stood out to me is like how difficult, how big Ukraine is. It's very big. Can you share one of the stories that um, that you worked on and uh, how you came to choose that particular story? Yeah, I've been working on one just because I think it would resonate with how how uh, friends and and family would would do in the in the mix of conflict like this. So there was two best friends. They both own like a surplus like military store but not like care like guns or anything like tactical pants and boots you know any kind of like military surplus store and they're best friends and he's on the he lives one of them's on uh polish and the other's ukrainian and so when the war started and um they he sent his family out of ukraine to his buddy in poland and the Polish guy, uh, Edek is his name. He helped him get like, uh, like found him a house to stay in. And it was, it was his wife, his daughter, his mom, and then his wife's parents. So, uh, they had to get out because you, his, they had to, you know, um, the Ukrainian dad had to, had to stay because he's not allowed to leave and he wanted to stay. He wanted to help. Um, so seeing like, you know, if I had to send my wife off to somewhere else and that's a lot, you saw a lot of that, you know, dads and, um, husbands leaving their loved ones behind or sending them off to safety. Um, that was pretty a common thing that you would see all the time. So I, I saw like the family trying to adjust and pull in constantly on their phone trying to make, you know, a light of the situation. I would spend dinners and hang out with them and drink vodka all the time, you know, and Polish vodka is <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I it's remember very good. that. <laughs> yeah, it's way cleaner and I, yeah. I liked it. I, um, I love it. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I yeah. Commentary. Yeah. <laughs> so you would you know, and but you saw, you know, the Ukrainian, his best friend Idik, you know, helping his family get situated um, and try to make something normal and try to make mm-hmm. them comfortable. And um, and then uh, Yadik is the Ukrainian guy who's Edik's best friend. And um, and he, his, his kind of, his store turned into like a logistical like office. So they would get in supplies and they know like retail and distribution because that's their business. So they came naturally for them in wartime when they get medical supplies or clothing because in Ukraine you can't get anything, you know, in, inside anymore. You have to get everything from the outside. So they were set up naturally of like how to get stuff in because that's their business is getting ordering stuff and getting on transports and sending them off. And during wartime they're getting everything from medicine to clothing to to uh, boots, you know, and that's kind of their business now is trying to be the logistical uh, operation. And that was, so a lot of it was the city of Lviv became, is be, it's like pretty much a logistical distribution place. 
people sending in there and then they try to get everything down to the south like to Odessa or really hard hit areas like Mariupol which you see like in the news so um that's kind of one story it's just you know seeing the good side of things and the sad side of things of leaving taking your family and taking them to safety you saw that and like that was pretty common theme of the men staying and saying goodbye to their to the loved ones you know and women stayed too there was a lot of like i met incredible like nurses ukrainian women staying and wanted to be either stay and fight or you know they needed doctors and nurses yeah and, you you've been hearing some of those stories about the you know the older women you know that 70 and 80 years old that are standing back and yeah. you know whether if it's just a you know a can of tomato soup they're throwing at them you know whatever they're 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 standing their ground going yeah. this is my home get out of here yeah. oh yeah yeah i mean there was still a lot of you know um you know a lot of people have their own decisions and what they want to do but yeah it's a, it's scary when you think of a country like russia which it's a top three military. But you know, the, it, again, this is that thing, you know, how, how things are portrayed in the media and what you witness. Cause mm-hmm. what you're, what you're hearing on the news, you're kind of going, is Russia really the powerhouse that we believe they are? Mm-hmm. You know, cause you know, it's, it's like even the thing, you know, when they, the guys are going into Chernobyl and, you know, kicking up all this radioactive dust and now they're all sick you know, would, uh, how, you know, where, where's the, the intelligence on that one? Yeah, where, what did you hear on the ground? Because you were there for a month mm-hmm. and, you know, boom, it happened. It started and then the, the exodus and all of that and the enormous change in a month. So what were you hearing about, about exactly what Rodney was referring to? So it's pretty obvious Russia definitely miscalculated um their capabilities for sure and ukraine's capabilities um and it's a very hard country to there's no way they're going to be able to control it if they happen to get more ground so they definitely for sure miscalculated their capabilities you know whether it's using old vehicles old tactical equipment you know, my friend said he looked at it like a Russian soldier's gear, everything, and even his gun, his optics, his lasers, like the features of the gun, his equipment on him, very outdated. So it's it's almost like the generals of the Russian army lied to like Putin, being like, "Yeah, our military is this strong," or maybe Putin was like, just didn't think Ukraine had that capabilities and they could just go in. But I think we're seeing that Russia's military power, if they didn't have nukes, it would, you know, there was, they could, they would not be in the top, you know, five or 10 or something like that. And Ukraine, you know, has the motivation, have, have the will to fight and, um, and they've proved to hold their themselves very strong. I also do think, in my opinion, Russia has been very conservative on airstrikes. If they wanted to, they could level any city if they wanted to. But I don't think they want to rebuild. A lot of those cities are um, important to them. 
and I think that would just it wouldn't be any gain for them. Yeah, so, that's that was the other thing I was wondering about. You know, you're you're coming in to take over this country, but you're destroying the whole thing. Yeah. You know, so you take it over, and then you've got to rebuild the whole. Mm-hmm. And, and there are it doing make that. Any sense. Yeah, and there are doing that, like in places like Mariupol and some of the really close to the borders of of Russia. Um, but places like Kiev, the capital, and Lviv. Um, yeah, there's still like Kiev has a lot of destruction, but they could easily just carpet bomb it if they wanted to. They have those capabilities. Maybe not like the air power that we still thought they should have, but it's it, in my opinion, it seems like they've been pretty. I quote this because yes, they've done awful airstrikes and awful situation, but they can easily increase that more. Um, as far as their ground support. Um, it's still very difficult because one of the main issues for them is they have to stay on the main roads. They can't go off roading because the territory is either, um, can't get through forest or there's mud and just like really like, like nature became a, you know, a problem for them. So they have to be forced staying on the ground on major roads or just roads. And that's like such a big target for for Ukrainians to hit, whether their own anti-aircraft or drone strikes. So that that became a huge problem for Russia. Um, I remember you were talking about that here when you were leaving um, (coughs) a couple of days before you were leaving for there. Um, And what you were telling us, we said, what are you hearing over there from your journalist friends on the ground and that network? And there was still a sense that it was mostly talk and threat, and mm-hmm. part of it, you said, was the mud, that there was a certain point that after spring came, it would get too muddy. But everybody was kind of, I really don't think this is going to happen. And then, literally, bang, you yeah, were gone yeah. a and couple days happened. later. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen until it did. So mm-hmm. um, No, even when I was there, I asked a lot of Ukrainians, even for them, <laughs> they were surprised that actually happened. They, You would meet some, it's like, well, what do you think? They're like, putting so much equipment over but for most people they were also really surprised that it happened like maybe like wow okay um and i think now assessing it unless russia decides to just go crazy and just bomb everything and not give you know doesn't care about human life because there's still a lot of civilians in those places um I think they're stuck. I think it's like a stalemate and they're trying to figure out what's their next plan. So their operation turned out horribly wrong. They're very ill-equipped. Their supply lines are not doing great, whether it's like fuel or getting food to the soldiers. So it's, it's, they have a really big problem and a combined with, they don't want to, conduct they don't want to completely destroy some of the major towns there so that makes it hard it, you know it I, I mean instance for compare i was in the mosul operation in iraq uh, where isis held mosul and the and so you had u.s air power nato power you had iraqi trained forces um trained by the u.s and had a lot of them had U.S. military equipment, so up-to-date equipment, and their resources, and their intelligence, and their um, drone capabilities. And it and Mosul took 
six months to take over. And ISIS had, you know, they had good weapons, but not like Ukrainian type of good weapons where they had javelin missiles, anti-tank, and, you know, and that still took six months to take that city. And you had U.S. airstrikes actually kind of bombing a lot of stuff. I mean, the old city was like completely rebel. So that's the really the otherwise there's very hard to take a urbanized city. If you don't, if you decide not to do constant airstrikes, taking out targets and you're just using manpower, mm -mm. Mm -hmm. it's very hard military wise. Mm. So it doesn't seem like Russia really wants to go full in on just completely bombardment and then you go in. So that's really the only ways. And Kiev is such a big, the capital is huge. I think it, I want to say someone says it's as big as like Chicago. So, um, so yeah, I think it was a major mistake for Russia. Um, and uh, they're going to have to switch up their tactics or what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. Well, what is, what have you heard of, you know, cause over here, you know, you're actually hearing two stories. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear the stories of the Russians that are going, what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this? But then the next news clip is Putin in a Trump kind of rally, you know, with tens of thousands of people cheering Russia, you know, because mm -hmm. they're, they're hearing and believing the propaganda that he's putting out because, you know, they're, you know, that's, that's pretty much all they're allowing out right now. Is that right? The yeah, I um, it's cr a lot of journalists, major networks that I know, they're out of Russia. Like Reuters, I've heard are out. Like, and they're the most kind of like neutral, you know, you could be. But a lot of journalists left Russia, um, so it's it's you're not getting too much information out of there. And if you are getting information out of there, it's kind of I think CNN still has has a as um, they're still doing stories out of there, but it's very like correspondent type stuff. And, um, um, but I mean, there was a lot of Russians that had connections in Ukraine too, and business people in, um, I don't, I, Putin's still very smart, even though this is like a major mistake by him, but I think he understands his base. I think he understands his power over his government and i think it would be insanely hard for him to get out of power even despite all this i think it's still i think he knows that it would be very hard for him to to get out of power whatever that looks like but i'm sure there's supporters for him you know um that's you know in war there's always two sides um and i'm not surprised there are yeah, because it's just, there really was no justification for yeah. this. And, Other than I want that. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I, that's, that, I, I guess I shouldn't even say that because I'm, you know, this day and age, who knows. But, you know, if if we were just to go attack Mexico because we want it, you yeah. know, his reasoning, would, would we? <laughs> so, you know? Yeah, his reasoning was Ukraine not to join NATO even though Ukraine would never be able to join NATO. And even if they did, it would take another like 15 to 20 years to get that passed. So his real reason, definitely he did not like U S military having quote a partnership in Ukraine right next to Russia. 
He doesn't want any kind of military, U.S. military association with a border country. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, at least for that part, and for sure, has U.S. have interventions with Ukraine? Absolutely. Like, for sure. And that was probably one of his reasons, but it's still, like, you didn't see, like, U.S. tanks and stuff like that. You didn't see, at least I didn't hear about. Um, and another thing is, which it was, like, the craziest thing was, like, he wants to take out all the Nazis in Ukraine. For sure, like, there are some very questionable groups and organizations in Ukraine. But it would be the same, like, the U.S. has KKK. Okay, now let's go invade them because they have some KKK members. You know, it, it's still not the justification of invading Ukraine just because there's Nazis. And, like, the whole country is not Nazis. It's, you know, a very small group. Why is it, it takes so long to get through NATO? I'm, um, I'm not really sure. I, it just probably sounds like that's someone told me that it just takes a long time. For yeah, I've heard that, countries. but I haven't bothered to research it enough to I know one of the reasons why why, if the country's in conflict or in strife with another country Mm -hmm. then you can't join so they would have to like resolve all the issues and Ukraine was never going to be able to join Mm because in the Donbass area where like the Russian separatists in Crimea that was like an ongoing conflict so it was never and now for sure it would like Ukraine joining NATO we'll see I don't know like I've never seen uh, such a one-sided comp where like Russia is really like the lonely country in this. So who knows what NATO might do? So it's a tricky politics are coming into play, and NATO has to be careful of what Russia could respond to. So we're still mm-hmm. a long way of what this what this end game could be, and um, I'm hoping. NATO in the U.S., you know, really, you know, they're maybe not patient, but they know better than me. But it's, you know, you're there's U.S. forces on the Polish-Hungary side, and Russia is, you know, that airspace is pretty small. And if you think of scheme of things, so there's a lot of mistakes. I mean, Russia bombed a Ukrainian military base that was like 15 kilometers from the Polish border. And U.S. forces are on that side. I mean, and people make mistakes, too. So it's a very tense situation. Um, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong really fast. Right Do you now. hear anything about um, the sanctions, the so-called sanctions? Because oh, that gets a lot of play Oh, here. they definitely have hurt them. How, mean, how do you see that or experience that? Well, the, yeah, the, I just read a report yesterday, though, that they said that they're... I guess the ruble is is up now, mm-hmm. so they're questioning if the sanctions are even doing anything. Mm-hmm. It's again, it's you know, you hear this and you hear this. It's like you don't know what to believe anymore. It hurts. It hurts the everyday person. Mm-hmm. In Russia, like it hurt. You know, it hurts the whole. I mean, it's hurting people. I don't know if it's going to actually hurt. You know, the Putin and the government, but it's definitely hurting everyday people, for sure. Um, but Putin knew like this would, would come if he were to invade, he counted for it and, um, and I'm sure he calculated, you know, if they were to do all these sanctions, what, what he could do. So 
the biggest one is the gas line between Russia and, and Europe. And I, I still think that's still operating. Um, but if like Europe were to cut that off, I mean, they would, they would be hurting pretty big. Yeah. Cause you know, countries like in Germany, aren't they mm-hmm. literally a hundred percent reliant on pretty much yeah. Russian oil? Mm-hmm. So yeah. What do you, what do you do? It would hurt Russia in the end, but it's still like, um, I'm, I'm sure they would calculate that, um, into play. So yeah, has san- sanctions have, have they hurt Russia for sure? Um, but I, I think he was calculating, like he was betting on that to happen and had a plan for it. Um, so it's, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, hurting people, but I don't, I think he knew he was counting on these sanctions to happen anyway. So. You had mentioned to us before we went on the air that you expect to go back around May. Um, what's about that timing and do you have any idea what to expect in terms of any changes? Yeah, I, um, I think if I were to go back, it would probably be in May cause I just want to see, like, I think right now Russia and Ukraine are at a stall, meaning like, I don't think Russia is trying to actively take areas right now and they're having such a hard time taking anything like they're still trying to take Mariupol and they're and so and I think they've even tried to stop taking areas of trying to take control of the capital so I think it's going to be unfortunately like this kind of stall kind of issue um unless Russia changed up their tactics so I Maybe their tactic is to stall it and have the Ukrainians um, maybe fight among themselves or try to bring chaos within their country, but I don't think that's going to work. They're all pretty unified. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe try to crumble the country you know, into chaos just being there, but I don't think that's going to work. So I, th- I think they want to still try to take half of the country that's closest to their border and cut that off. But that's going to be still really difficult for them. So I think they're trying to like figure out negotiations with the Ukrainian government and that's going to take some time. So I think right now it's kind of like a stall right now. And so I think that's going to be for the next month or so, unless Russia really changed their tactics. Um, and if I decide to go back in May, yeah, I would like to see like, if people are going to return back because it's like install in different parts of Ukraine, that's like quote unquote, you know, safe. Um, how Ukrainians are living in Poland, Romania and Germany, how they're adapting. Um, what's the humanitarian efforts? Because really there's not that there's hardly any major, um, NGOs other than like the red cross, but like UN Oxfam, you know, they could be there now, but, I didn't really see any other than like the Red Cross. Um, I'm curious what they're going to do because right now those organizations are pretty risk avert. And so they're staying on the other side of the borders. So I'm curious what their plan's gonna be. Um, so we'll see. There's a lot of foreigners, foreign fighters going into Ukraine. Uh, I, I think that's going to be an issue 
um, for Ukraine. You're not seeing, in my opinion, a lot of the foreign fighters that I came across. A lot of good ones with experience, but a lot of them, they're not knowing what they're getting themselves into and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. A lot of the foreign fighters that went there, went early on, they're well situated, well equipped, know what they're doing. Uh, when the invasion started, you saw a lot of influx of foreign fighters. And I met a lot of good ones, but I met a lot of ones that either are running away from issues or, you know, doing it for the wrong reasons, in my opinion. Um, so I'm curious to see what that situation is. Another, like, and they're just like, I think they go in seeing news reports of Russia helicopters getting shot down, tanks being blowing up, and like, oh, cool, I'm going to get that stuff. Like the no, adrenaline part. Yeah, no, you're not going to get that stuff. Yeah. There's foreign fighters who don't even have, can't even get boots. If they're lucky enough to get a gun, maybe I've heard reports and been told, like, they got, like, 10 rounds of ammo, and that's it, you know, or they have to share guns. Like, you get it here, and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Your turn. Okay, wait, my turn. <laughs> yeah, so there is a big, big issue, I think, right now for foreigners getting military equipment and is not as organized as you think like you can bounce around if i signed up i can go bounce around to yeah, wherever i want yeah. Hmm. yeah well it's to kind of i guess digress a little bit on it it's when when we had talked before you left we you know we were talking about things like logistics and what it's like for you being there mm -hmm. you know and how you you know with you know with your tools and what you need with your gear and you know, in something like this, you know, are there hotels available? Mm -hmm. You have power, you can go charge batteries and, yeah. you know, keep downloading, you know. The when crazy was how good the phone, like, internet was. <laughs> I was We're a little like, sensitive to that issue yeah. here right now today, actually. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, parts of Ukraine better yeah, than I got yeah. in Wimberley. Like, yeah. Like, which is where we broadcast from Wimberley, Texas, which yeah. is about 40 miles outside of Austin so, in the country with the cows. <laughs> so like phone service and internet was like really good. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're able to, you, this reporting is so interesting is because you had journalists sending out material very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, again, like a lot of journalists weren't able to go in bed with the Ukrainian military because one it's insanely dangerous you can get airstriked at any moment. And so a lot of times when that something happens, whether Russia bombs something or um, then the journalists can go after whatever that incident is happening, but still very dangerous. Um, so, and I, um, Okay, re repeat your question again, Ronnie. Well, it was <clears throat> it was just wondering, you know, your logistics and how you oh, yeah, you know yeah. keep your gear up and yeah, so know, keeping batteries charged yeah. and <laughs> so power was no problem. Hotels, even in a lot of areas, were still were still going, um, which was great because a lot of journalists that's kind of you need some kind of shelter and uh, food and internet, like that's what and you maybe need. Shower, maybe that's like the <laughs> so. Um, so, I, very different in other places though, like some of the really hard hit areas, obviously it's like whatever you can get, like Mariupol people were like, their only water was just like puddles of mm -hmm. water and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, and I don't know any more journalist. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no journalists in those areas other than like civilian mm-hmm. journalists. Um, and but for the most part, yeah, I was one. I couldn't believe like the internet on your phone still working. Um, I just assumed that would just be completely mm-hmm. knocked out. And then food was really not an issue. Um, the issue was driving and gasoline because gas was like the first day invasion, like everyone was running out. Mm. So transportation and moving around the country was definitely like, I did not think that was going to be that big of an issue just because you never know what checkpoints you're going to run into, whether it's like official Ukrainian checkpoint, which that's the one you want get it or you're driving in the middle of night and it's just drunk assholes who have guns and they're like we made a checkpoint and we're going to steal your shit really oh yeah that was big that happened to a few journalists that i know got they were driving through the night right into a checkpoint and it was just drunk assholes with with ak-47s and saying Mm. we're ukrainian checkpoint and they stole their shit and made them turn around go back wow so that Mm. was a big issue um, but I kept it light on this one. Um, yeah, I, I would have my gear, um, in Poland. And then if I were to go in Ukraine, it was just like a backpack and my camera bag. And I stayed in my, in my, um, safety gear. So my vest and medical pack and my helmet. So I kept it as light as possible when they're enough for like, you know, seven or eight days. And then, um, so I made like three or four trips into Ukraine, came back to Poland, made, you know, stay for a week or so, get the stories and mm-hmm. then get out. So, but I know journalists who were in Kiev for a long time, holding up, staying in hotels. Um, and for food, at least in those areas was, I did never heard a problem with it. Well, food and medical supplies were real issue going towards really on the Western side close to like the Russian border where those areas are insanely hard to get to. So those are the main issues. And what (coughs) the other thing we talk about, when I guess when we were talking about this and you're like, yeah, it's it's probably not going to happen. Russia's Mm -hmm. not that stupid. And of course it happens, but you, you said that if it was going to happen, they were going to wait until, the weather got crappy mm-hmm. so they could cut off power and then these people are freezing you know what what were the conditions it was so it was really cold i don't think it even got cold enough for i don't think it was like a winter like it was cold to me it was freaking freezing but to them they're like no it could get a lot colder and i don't think like they kept using the main roads like they weren't even trying to go off road so they if you're on the main road you're you are have such a high chance of getting hit by mm. airstrike artillery. Like you're very out in the open. So I think they really just missed. I just thought they could they could just bully their way in, and maybe they thought the Ukrainians military would lay down their arms and run away. I really think that was probably their. They they really thought that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um. But one thing I'm sure is like Putin is very unpredictable. So it's like, it's hard for me now to, because he invaded Ukraine, it's really hard for me now to like really predict what he's going to do because I thought there was no way he was going to do this. Even like 
people who I really know and spend more time in that country and have really good connections, like they didn't think he was actually going to do this. You know, so. the other thing we obviously hear so much about is Zelensky. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's yeah. the word on the ground with the Ukrainians? Is, is he as much of a hero as uh, he seems to be I, to us? It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, um, as far as like Ukrainians go, like they have a really big respect for him. They think he's doing a good job. Is there is there political sides that disagree with him? For sure. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, he's he's seen as a hero. He's seen as um, a celebrity, you know, especially outside of Ukraine. Um, he still, you know, Ukrainians will still say he's still a politician. Like, you know, uh, I think politician is, especially during the 2016 election, politician has become really bad. So I think for the most part, most of the Ukrainian people you know, are united with him and they see that he's doing everything he can, um, to help stop Russia. But, um, definitely he's taken this celebrity status outside of Ukraine too. That's kind of, it's crazy. I mean, they're for sure going to make a movie about this, right? Like there's no way. (laughs) Why don't you make that movie? (laughs) So, I mean, you even had like Sean Penn there. And he was interviewing. He always shows up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he he's. Um, I mean, he's he's there with his family still. I mean, Russia could easily use a hypersonic missile and end it. Hundred um, percent. And for whatever reason, they don't want to do that. And yeah, Ukrainian has capabilities to maybe stop that, but not like a hypersonic you know, new age type of tactical weapons that Russia for sure has. And they've been pretty conservative on that front. They haven't really used their really new stuff. So Zelensky is very brave because if, if um, Putin wanted to, he can use his mm-hmm. new capabilities and Zelensky's there with his family. Yeah. So He's very brave at doing that, and he's very smart. He's calculating, like, no, I don't think Putin... It's a very interesting, like, mind games, right? So um, so we'll see. I think it's a bad idea now for Russia to take him out. Mm-hmm. Because he is so mm-hmm. popular. and mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. so I think that's not going to be a part of their strategy. But again, like, I thought I had a good sense of what Putin was not going to invade Ukraine. But since he did, now I'm like, I really, like, I'm just guessing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just guessing based off what Russia's strategy is doing on the ground. And it seems like they're trying to, like, just do, like, kind of like a stall. You know, you mentioned family and Zelensky's family. Um, You live here in Wimberley, beautiful Wimberley. It's an absolutely incredible spring day here and the birds are driving us a little crazy and the cows, I hope, you know, I hope some of it comes through on our, <laughs> on our recording. I'm really interested and curious, nosy as my mother would call it. Um, you are totally immersed 110% in that kind of an environment, not just for Ukraine, but all the work mm-hmm. you've done over the last, what, 30 years, I guess. And then you come back to this idyllic little peaceful place that's so quiet. What is that like for you? 
Yeah, I, um, for me, I, I, uh, it's, it really is a polar opposite of what you do, but I think I like the peace and quiet and get, lets my head rest. And, um, I think the biggest thing for me adjusting, cause once you go to those type of places, like your brain is on, like you're looking for mm. every time you're in a situation, I'm looking for, okay, if this scenario happens, I'm going to go to this building. Or if people start scattering where I'm going to go so I don't get trampled or is this taxi have like, it's a good taxi and there's actually open the door and the door actually opens like if there's no door handle. So it's like your brain is just constantly on, um, of, being situated situational awareness and on top of like going if you're going for a story and making sure like the roads are clear and having everything that you have and plus a, on top of like taking a photo like, mm. so your your brain is just going you know 100 miles an hour every single day and so when you come here it's re- adjusting turning the dialing that back down is the biggest thing, at least for me, is the biggest thing. Yeah. So I found living out here, um, oh, you know, with less people and less things for me to look at or be situated, I found it v- very much peaceful for me. So just because you just have, you know, I can be on the trees and birds and, you know, or when I go to restaurants or go out to public places, it's not like a big city type of place. So I, for me, I love it. Rodney, I've thought, and we talked about it, it'd be really good to have his wife with him on this podcast the next time we talk, because you do have a family, Mm -hmm. and um, she must be an incredibly um, strong woman herself, and you have a brand new little baby. Yeah. So. Yeah, my my wife and I have been together for, for seven years, and uh, even before that, we were dating, but I was off, you know, traveling. I think like after a second date, I went off to the one of the Gaza conflicts, and then came back. After your second date? Yeah, something. Like and there that. was a what third. Did, what Amazing. did your boyfriend do? <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> and um, she's. I think the key is like, yeah, she's a. She is like very into like she could operate life without me no problem <laughs> well that's <laughs> a mixed has, blessing isn't yeah. it <laughs> that's, that's kind of like my girlfriend yeah. Yeah, she'd be just fine without me yeah. so i was like <laughs> yeah so um and so that like uh yeah i've gotten like i mean this type of work you know you don't really see many people with with families um i mean there are, definitely are some but you don't, not not that many so um i've definitely have I've gotten really lucky and, and I'm blessed that I I met Ashley and um and every single trip has always been supportive and obviously she like she'll get scared and worried and stuff like that but um but she's always just been hey how's the trip how are you doing it's never like come back home I miss you or you know it's like which normal that would be a normal situation like any loved one going out and doing that Mm -hmm. like you can't blame them wanting to do that but it's always at least for our instance has always been like very supportive and and she trusts my judgment and she trusts what I'm doing not saying like you can do everything you can prepare for you could still you know something bad could happen but you know she's great and when I come home it's you know 
life is we're going to bar we just did a barbecue yesterday and mm-hmm. hanging out you know and well i loved your comment we got a text from dylan a few minutes before he was <clears throat> going to show up and he said well i'm going to be a few minutes late because i have baby duty this morning <laughs> and he said i bet you do after being gone yeah. for definitely has changed with having a kid um and rosie is how old now She's uh, three months three months mm-hmm. wow so yeah at the that it's crazy how fast they grow even within a month you know yeah. picking up their head and you know yeah. she's yeah. she giggles and laughs you know when you see her and she's much more she's been actually an amazing sleeper like i she uh like goes to bed at nine wakes up at you know seven wow so yeah she's heavy she gets that from me probably <laughs> um, um so yeah i think for me now doing this kind of work i'm much more risk averse and, uh, and I'm much more of like, is it worth, like, if, is this a story that I know I have to think it, unfortunately I have to think it on the business side of things too. Mm-hmm. It's like, is this story one, I know if I do it, I can, you know, make something out of it or two, I'm going to make sure I have my, these editors sign off on this work so I can go do it. If you're just going out, I'm not the mm-hmm. type of person anymore just to go out and see what happens see what happens yeah. you know I've, I've done that so well you're ready to tone it down a little bit and just go to kenya and do some stuff with elephants <laughs> or the crocodiles yeah. with rodney or what killer whales i think right yeah i would um i again like um it, what's crazy is like my portfolio is that and even though it's still like a shoot it's not that much different than what you do it's just yeah, the, there's differences, but you're still taking a photo and you're telling a story. And some people get kind of confused of like, you get what you do, you get branded for that certain thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I can go shoot a commercial for Walmart if I wanted to. It's just different environment. But And it would be the same as like, do I think someone who's been in the corporate commercial world come do what I do? Yeah, you just have to be smart and have the right mentality but as far as like taking that capability, taking a photo or whatever that is, it's just, it's just a different style of doing it. Yeah. It's, I, I remember when I first got into photography and that's all you heard was pick one thing. Hmm. Don't do everything. Cause you won't be taken seriously. And yeah. I was like, but I like doing everything. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and it's so, worked out pretty well for you, Ronnie. Oh well, yeah. And, but it, it is funny how, you know, I, my, you know, music, ended up being my main focus. And that's, I shot, I've been shooting music for 20 years and I got in seriously into my nature photography five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. And that is what I'm known for now. It's like my music stuff. I did it for 20 years and it just doesn't even exist anymore. It doesn't seem like everybody knows me. I'm constantly battling that. Yeah. It's, and I, and I love doing it all, but Mm -hmm. I'm known as the nature guy now. Yeah, (laughs) I've gotten into most recently, like, the 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 food scene in texas mm-hmm. mostly like like the south american style type of cooking that are in the hill country and um we'll do like whole animal cooks and stuff like that i love like cooking has always been like something that i love i love food and i love cooking especially like latin style or anything on the f- open flame um doesn't matter where um, I got a, I got a cookbook I need to give you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Wait, and, you burn it up already? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a big scene of that kind of style mm-hmm. cooking in Texas, mm-hmm. especially in Central Texas. Um, and I learned that from you. Yeah. From some of our previous and, conversations. Um, met a lot of 
great guys. Like in Bernie, Texas, this guy has like one of the biggest chimichurri dry rub and you just put olive oil and he's in Bernie and he comes out here and we do always do like we did they did a cookout treaty oaks and I came just to help and take some photos and and so um but yeah like I'm I like doing a little bit of everything but yeah it's very much of of I get branded for this style of, Mm -hmm. of stuff so I always told tell people it's like defer your portfolio try a little bit of everything but whatever you do you be ready to like you're gonna have to like for whatever reason people just assumed you're the, that person mm-hmm. so so well right, go ahead I just, I, I just I have one other question that mm-hmm. I meant I wanted to ask earlier but we got I got away from it sure. but or it's uh, but when you're when you're out there because again I'm relating what you're doing to mm-hmm. you know what I do. And if I'm, you know, say I'm in Cuba and there, most of the photo, you know, most of the photography there, it's street photography and, yeah, photography and people. And most people are very open to it. The kids and the older people mm-hmm. love it. You know, the, the teenagers, 20s, you know, they're kind of, eh, get away from me. And, you know, they, you occasionally have those moments where, you know, they they get pretty nasty about it. You know, it's like, yep. Get your, you know, so in a situation like this where it's really sensitive, you got people that are literally fleeing for their lives, and you're trying to photograph this. Are, are are they even aware that you're there, or do they see that you know, oh, he's bringing awareness to what we're going through, or mm-hmm. what do you encounter with? Yeah, I am. I I'm very sensitive to that stuff. Like I, there's been multiple chances where I probably should have taken that photo, and I'm just like, no no Mm -hmm. way or taking that video during like really chaotic times people don't really notice you know um and but you know another i mean i saw this they were at the train station lviv there was a train apparently coming in from Mariupol, which is like one of the hardest hitting areas very sad areas of ukraine and there was like tons of journalists waiting for this train coming in at the train station and this train comes in and there's people getting out and you just saw tons of reporters just like going in. And I was, I just wasn't, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do, you have like a thousand cameras and it turned out Be the, that guy. Huh? Yeah. And it turned out the train was not even from Mariupol. It was mm. just another train from some other area of Ukraine. So you saw all these journalists like, but so they want to get that like really sad type of story. And so for me, I've always just been I operated by myself with locals and try to steer away from anything that's like really breaking, breaking news. So, um, but yeah, you just kind of have to play about ear. Um, usually, you know, the typical tilt your camera up point and they either give you a thumbs up, you know, or, or down. But mm-hmm. so it's two situations. If something crazy chaotic is happening, they really don't even notice. Um, and the other one is, you know, I usually tend to try to like ask permission what they're going to do. So, um, one more thing you have to put into that algorithm, everything that's going on around you, Mm -hmm. you know, do I take the photograph? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. I've definitely gotten more on the, um, like making sure like they're okay with me Mm -hmm. doing it versus, Mm -hmm. Um, 
but again, it's still like, you kind of have to see, unfortunately you have to see on the business side, you have editors mm-hmm. and you got to pay the bills and yeah. stuff like that. So yeah. that's just kind of, that's part of the job kind of thing. The elephants don't care. <laughs> yeah. Do you know that, Rodney? <laughs> no, we know more about elephants now. They have feelings. <laughs> well, I think our time is coming to a close um, for this particular episode. Sure. Um, the good news is, the great news is, the grateful news is that you're back um, and that we've had this wonderful opportunity to have a conversation, the first of many. And I know it'll be the first of many because um, Dylan has also joined our well-paid staff on Passports and Poets as our video editor and producer. So we're really grateful to have that kind of access to you and we'll learn a lot from you and we certainly will hear more stories from you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, like I like doing other stuff Mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily always, you know, being branded for that type of work. Like, no, I like I like normal things. Well, <laughs> are we normal? Right? That's still up for debate, isn't that's, it? That's an insult. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're thanking people, we also want to thank our long-term producer, Brock Glenn Thomas, um, who has helped us from the very beginning. Rodney, we've been doing this almost two years now. Uh, it's hard uh, to believe, isn't it? It's just hard to believe, yeah. But it's really been quite a journey when you talk we, about... We, we went through a whole pandemic with this. <laughs> we, yeah, that's how we started. <laughs> who else? How else would we have had the time? <laughs> Um, we also want to thank Rupert Neve Design, who is, was so gracious and getting us started with some of our equipment here. We really appreciate that. Uh, we want to thank Donovan Frankenreiter, who has provided our intro and our outro music. We also want to thank Wimberley Valley Radio, our hometown radio station, KWVH 93.4, uh, who rebroadcasts our uh, podcast episodes on Wednesday, Central Time, from 3 to 4, and also have them in the archives. And of yesterday, uh, we had a new episode um, with, it's not Sir yeah. Ian, it's Dr. Ian Douglas Hamilton um, with Save the Elephants. It's Sir in my world. It, we always <laughs> call him Sir. Um, and most of all, we want to thank you, our listeners, um, for sharing in these conversations with us. So regardless of where you find your podcasts uh, and how you're listening to this, if you, would, if you enjoyed it, let us know. That's how we know that uh, we have some conversations that are, are more than just our interest, although that's our first priority, isn't it, Rodney? Yeah, and, and if you didn't enjoy it, lie to us. So. <laughs> So again, Dylan, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, episode. And until next time.